and welcome to You Got This, a podcast about teaching and learning and sustaining community for everyone at Thompson Rivers University. I'm your host, Brenna Clark-Gray, Coordinator of Educational Technologies, and this podcast is a project of your friends over at Learning Technology and Innovation. We're housed within open learning, but we support the whole campus community. I record this podcast in Tecumloops Te Shwetmuk within the unceded traditional lands of Shwetmuk Ulu, where I hope to learn and grow in community with all of you. And today's episode is coming to you from the end of a week that has been a year. <laughs> Normally I try to record these essays early in the week before I am too wildly ground down by, you know, pandemical life. Didn't happen this week, and I want to talk a bit about why. Let's get into it. So I am not uh, too big to admit that I have spent my entire week sucked into social media drama. (laughs) Like, oh my goodness. People who aren't in EdTech Twitter, and let me just recommend to you that you not get into EdTech Twitter. There's been a big discussion for a whole bunch of backstory that I'm not going to explain about Course Hero this week. If you're not familiar with it, Course Hero is a like a peer-to-peer sharing tool. Um, students upload their work, and uploading their work gives them like these credits that then lets them look at other students' work. And of course, it's framed as being a way for students to share course materials that they may not have access to because they missed a class or whatever. But of course, it's also used by some folks for plagiarism purposes. I think I've talked on the show before about some of my ambivalence around the way we talk about academic integrity and cheating and plagiarism and the sort of police state we construct around those concepts. That's not really why Course Hero bugs me. Course Hero bugs me because the one thing I do always care about is student data and whether or not we're doing a good job of educating students about A, the value of their own intellectual property, and B, the kinds of data that they release out into the world. I've never been persuaded by the argument that students don't care about data privacy. Every time I've had the opportunity to have a real conversation with students about data privacy, I'm reminded that there's a paucity of good information that they have access to. And I really believe that the mission of the university, and especially the public university, needs to be educative about these things. I'm less interested in talking about, you know, whether or not Course Hero is a bad actor because students are sharing materials and more interested in talking about the fact that Course Hero is a bad actor because it siphons up tons and tons and tons of student data. I'll share some links in the chat to some information that's come out over the last week. I'm deeply interested in this issue because I've been thinking all week about data ethics. Well, I'm always thinking about those things. (laughs) But the ethics of educational technologies, how we talk about them, how we teach about them. I spent the early part of this week frantically finishing a Shirk Insight Development Grant proposal to do some work in this field. And so it's all just really top of mind for me right now. I think we do a really bad job of protecting students and we do a really bad job of talking to them about what it means to share of themselves. That makes me sad (laughs) for a lot of reasons because if we're not teaching that, who is? And if we're not taking care about the tools that we bring into the institution around data ethics and privacy, then why would we be surprised when they turn to a tool like Course Hero 
which also doesn't care about their privacy. A guest of the show from last week, Noah Arney, and I were talking about this on Twitter, and we started talking about, like, the legalness of these tools is, like, the least interesting thing about them. Honestly, FIPA and regulations around legality of data sharing is the floor. (laughs) It's the floor. It's not an ethical standard that we aspire to. It's the minimum legal requirement. And I don't think the gap between those two concepts is big enough these days. Treating data and student work ethically is a way that we embody care. We tend to think of care, I think, as like touchy-feely and data as hard and concrete, but I actually don't think that that's true. Whether or not we respect student data and privacy and whether or not we educate them about why they should care, those are acts of pedagogies of care. I really believe they are. Anyway. I know data privacy is only of interest to like a small portion of the listenership, and I know the ones who are probably most interested have already seen me go off on Twitter, so I'll drop it here. And in fact, it's a good place to drop it because just as I'm wrapping up talking about care, I'm excited to have Stephanie Tate on the show. She's a repeat guest. We talked to Stephanie Tate about her role around academic integrity when she was a learning strategist, and she's in a new role now over at TRU World. One thing that is always important and inspiring about my conversations with Stephanie is the way that she enacts care for our students and our community in everything that she does. I think that she's an example of someone at TRU who we could all aspire to be more like, and I'm going to let her show you why in our conversation today. So today on the show, I am delighted to be joined by Stephanie Tate. Now, Stephanie is the first ever return guest on the show who isn't one of my coworkers who I can make do the show whenever I need them to. Um, But you'll know that in season one, I interviewed Stephanie about her work as a learning strategist. She has since moved over to a new role at TRU World. So I wanted her to come and tell us about what she does over there and uh, maybe a little bit about the work of TRU World more generally. So um, Stephanie, hi. Hi, good morning. Uh, it's so it's so nice when I hear your voice because I just like automatically smile. I'm here grinning at the computer and I don't think <laughs> that like, obviously folks can't see me, but like I'm excited. So hi, <laughs> thanks for having me back. Yay, would you introduce yourself with your shiny new title and let folks know uh, where they can find you on campus now that you've moved? Yeah, absolutely. Um, My name is Stephanie Tate. I use the pronoun she, her. Uh, I am one of 10 international student advisors here over at Teary World. Um, We're located in IB on the third floor. Definitely come by and have, um, and come say hi. I have a beautiful new office over here that I look out towards um, Mount Peter and Mount Paul. It's so beautiful. Um, Yeah, I'm, it's fun being, an international student advisor. Um, this is a new role for me. I just started actually last May. Nice. And I know from experience that your office is typically like a very cozy space. Do you have tea? Do you have the coziness all set up in your new space you got yet? Cozy. I've got tea. I've got plants that are living. I've only had to replace one. Um, but yeah, no, it's a beautiful space. It was really important for me when I created my space here, just like the one that I had over in Old Main. Um, when students come in that they could like literally and figuratively, you know, kind of just like take off their backpack and heave a sigh of relief and just kind of, you know, ground themselves before they jumped into what was, what brought them in. 
We don't always think about the physical teaching and learning spaces, but they're really important and a lot of them are really scary and intimidating. So carving out space where that's not the case, especially because I'm guessing as an advisor, you have to have some pretty difficult conversations with students in that space. Yeah, I think that like one of the biggest things that I've learned in this role in the um, almost year that I've been here is that um, students are coming through my door for a variety of reasons. So, you know, as an international student advisor, I'm, you know, virtually meeting with students uh, when they've received their admission to come to Tier U. So they're super excited. I'm really excited to share about my experience as a Tier U student and about now about the work that I do. And then, of course, living in Kalos, I'm a huge Kalos fan. And so I'm excited to share that information. And then my role shifts to when they do arrive on campus, then it's more exciting because now I've actually met the person that I've either been like um, on a Zoom call with or, you know, multiple, multiple, multiple emails. Um, that I've gone back and forth with the student. And then to the students that, you know, are in second or third year or finishing up to then being able to have conversations with them about, you know, their next steps and their next plans. And of course, in between sprinkled throughout that are students that I meet with that, you know, are going through some some hardship. And so those are those difficult conversations, you know, especially around midterms and finals, having that space where students can just kind of come in and, and just like, take a breath. I think Mm -hmm. that's always been really important for me um, to allow them to feel really comfortable. I was just thinking when you said you love telling them about Kamloops, you are one of the biggest Kamloops boosters I know. (laughs) And I know that anytime I complain about Kamloops on Twitter, either you or Melissa Jakubek will jump on (laughs) and and, uh, defend the city and check me. So I can't think of a better Uh... ambassador for the town (laughs) than you are. Um, I wonder if you could tell me, maybe, I think I made you do this for um, the learning strategist role as well, but I don't think advising is a well understood role. And I think particularly particularly international student advising is maybe not well understood. I wonder if you could give me like a little bit of a like day in the life. What does an average work day look like for you? And maybe you could tell us a bit about like maybe your portfolio, like how many students you would see, you know, over a term, those kinds of details. Totally. Um, so I want to really preface this by saying that like I am listed as like an international student advisor, but I definitely do not do any academic advising. Those are my wonderful colleagues over in advising, uh, housed in Old Maine, also the program advisors like in Sobe at Olara and all of the different program advisors for the different faculties. Those folks are amazing. I definitely don't do that job. I refer all of my students to those folks because they are the ones that know the programs. And so so we work collaboratively with them um, for student support. But I did not know that. So thank you. Yeah, of course. Um, a day in the life of an international student advisor is great. Um, so we have this uh, we have this new app called QList where um, students can like virtually log into a virtual queue to either see an ISA, uh, so myself or any of my colleagues. Um, at our front desk. Uh, so we have a help desk kind of a, um, we call it a help desk, but it's really just general inquiries. We're there from like 10 to four. Students can pop in, ask like a quick question. So that could po- possibly be part of my day. Emails are definitely a, a huge part of my day. And then also 
planning events and planning information sessions for students that are new and coming. So out of the 10 ISAs, we're separated. Our students are kind of separated to us by country and culture languages. So I have a colleague, her name's Sonali. She is one of our interns. We have two interns that just started in November. So amazing. Thank you to you for having that program. So both of our interns are new grads, which is really cool because I think that like there's so many jobs out there that they're like, you need a year's experience. So this is such a great opportunity for both of our interns Mm -hmm. to get this experience. So Sonali came on board in November and I was super stoked um, because I was the only ISA for Indian students. And I don't know if you've seen the demographic around town, but we do have a lot of Indian students. Yeah, I would say we probably need more than one advisor for that role. Yes. Definitely. Um, So I was super grateful when she came on board. I don't have my winter numbers yet, but my fall numbers, there were 1,400 international students for India. So that's a lot. There's like 1,400 of them and one of me. So getting clear and consistent communication out to them is really important. So we work really closely with our international admissions team in pushing out that communication to students. So things as simple as like, Don't forget to pay your tuition deposit and, you know, tuition due date is this day and don't forget to register for courses, all of that sort of stuff. And then we're also really just aware of like um, what's going on in the world, right? World events. So like specifically the last couple of weeks with Kazakhstan, uh, we've had, we have a number of students from there. So just making sure that we're pushing out support to those students, whether it's like, you know, extension for them, say, paying their fees because they're, they're unable to get money out of their country. You know, just looking at specific things of what's going on in the world. Um, we have an amazing marketing team that um, really kind of has their pulse on that. So they connect with everybody on the senior leadership team over at TRE World. Um, and then information is filtered down to the ISAs. But typically, we're already usually aware because our students are um, either telling us or reading it about it on Twitter. Hashtag yay Twitter. That's um, a wild number of students. That's 1,400 students. I know that you're getting information out to them all the time. And, um, you know, you've got support with that piece of it. But how many of those 1,400 students would you say you have, like, consistent contact with or are helping to solve a problem or are, you know, acting in sort of a pastoral care capacity? Like, that's a lot of people. A lot, I would say. So, you know, yes, we send out email communications, but like um, everybody is on social. So then when I started this role, I was like, I need to create an Instagram. A, because I didn't want students following my own personal Instagram. I post pictures of my nieces and that's not just something that I wanted to share. So I created my own TRU underscore Stephanie underscore ISA Instagram, which is great because then I can just push TRU information like athletics or, you know, this club is looking for people and um, maybe you want to apply um, the farmer's market, you know, because I love Kamloops. So that has been a great opportunity. And, and so I didn't at the time think about how students would also engage with me. And so the engagement is great, uh, but then students also DM. So I've had to be really good about my own boundaries and being like when students send like a full paragraph question, being like, hey, do you mind just emailing that to me? Because um, this is a lot of information. And I typically look at DMs and whatnot when I'm randomly scrolling, right? Like most people, yeah. right? It's not something I sit at my desk to to do. So kind of have this difficult situation where you're on the one hand, you want to meet students where they're at in terms of social media or their preferred ways to communicate. But on the other hand, you have a huge 
advisory load and you need to maintain some semblance of work-life balance. I like to say this because I'm bad at it. I like to pretend I'm good at it on the show. Um, but that must be difficult to, to sort of manage, I would think, because students need you. It was definitely difficult, I think, uh, last semester until the intern came in. The intern, I call her that, until Sonali came in. Um, having her as my, like, second, like, she's not, I'm not first, she's not second, she's first, I'm not, like, whatever, we are colleagues, and having a partner to help manage the sheer number of students has been amazing, and I think that, like, so she also created an Instagram account, and so sometimes we go live together, and we share information, um, and so it's just another way, I think, for students to, like, engage with us, and so I hope that, I hope that it's helpful for students, but, you know, I, I don't know, I, I don't know. Do students all read their emails? Do they mm. read the Moodle notifications? And so mm. I'm always curious to know. And I do ask students every um, semester, like our newest intake would be winter. You know, how did you find orientation? What would you like to change? I remember you tweeted last fall where you were like, I'm going to teach people how to do a podcast. And I was like, oh, I don't have time on my plate, but please teach that again because maybe. Maybe I want to do a podcast so I can share that with students. But yeah. it's always like constantly changing and constantly evolving. And I think that you just have to like, you just have to try, right? I mean, mm-hmm. if it works, great. If it doesn't land, then we try something different. So you've got a pretty good finger on the pulse of at least a particular student population. Um, mm-hmm. How are they doing? Like, I don't know. I think they're so happy to be here on campus. I was going to ask, do they primarily want to meet in person versus like virtual appointments and stuff? Yes. Yes, definitely. Most of my virtual appointments right now are all students who unfortunately had to defer from winter semester um, to fall. Thank you. Huge shout out to Sobe for allowing a summer intake. Um, We typically, um, yeah, students want to be in person. They want to... Um, come from their home country, you know, the travel, the sheer amount of travel for students in fall that had to travel through uh, third countries to get here, you know, whether they were traveling from Delhi to Paris to Frankfurt to Kamloops, or some students mm-hmm. had to like overnight in Egypt, some students overnighted in in Mexico. I have nothing but like admiration for all of my international students, like all the students, not just from my demographic of India, but all that had to travel um, and are traveling with COVID and with all of the changing, um, consistently changing. That's the only thing that's been consistent is the change with the policies for travelers coming in and the vaccination requirements. You know, they've done so amazing. I'm so proud of them. Um, You know, these are, they've been able to really showcase their soft skills of being adaptable and, you know, being able to take what's, what's given to them and, and fly with it. I'm, Huh, that's a good fun. Fly with it. Um, <laughs> I, yeah, I'm, I'm just so, I admire them so much. And so, yes, back to your question. They, they love being on campus. I think they like, um, they're happy. They've, you know, found jobs and, and they're enjoying their studies. You know, a few of them have failed some classes. And so that has been a bit of a, oh, you know, a bit of a wake up. But for the most part, they're really enjoying their experience here on campus and they enjoy, the one-to-one. I'm a student myself finishing my MED. And so from a student perspective, it's, I'm not an online learner by far, Mm -hmm. you know, that interaction that you can get in a classroom with your peers is something that is, and I don't mean this negatively because I know what you do as a job. Um, (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> it's sometimes hard to like mimic that in an online setting, right? No, I mean, it is. And we also, we transitioned to something that wasn't really online learning. I mean, I don't mean that in the no true Scotsman kind of way, but like it wasn't planned or organized or set out by an instructional designer. It was a pretty haphazard experience. And I think that for a lot of students, it was uneven. Yes, I think that's a, such a good word. That's such a good term. And I think you're right, because there were some classes that I was like, okay, this is great. I could do this. And somewhere I was like, oh, okay, okay, this is very different from what I, I did last semester. Okay, I can, I can do this. Well, and there's a big difference between signing up for it, choosing it, right? And if you're an international uh-huh. student wanting to come to Canada, having seen all these pictures of like mountains and desert and cool landscapes, and I think that um, it's a big ask to then transition to a fully online modality. So I'm not surprised that an international student who has big dreams and big plans would really rather be here. I think that's fair. <laughs> yeah. And I think, you know, we think we, we think about all those other things too, like time difference and bandwidth yeah. for your Wi-Fi and all of that sort of stuff that we, you know, I take for granted here, right? Like I walk into most places and there's Wi-Fi available to me. Um, all of those things um, play a part in, in your learning accessibility to your instructors and to other supports on campus. Like campus as a whole did do an amazing job to be able to offer so many different things virtually, you know, like I think of Jenna and the right away through mm-hmm. um, the writing center, you know, um, amazing. But I think for the most part, most of them are very happy to be here and starting their journey. I wonder you know, you speak so eloquently and thoughtfully and compassionately about your student population, which, you know, you always do. I, I It's not hard to see why you are doing an MED and why you are in a student-facing role. I wonder if there's anything you wish that the community as a whole, faculty as a whole, knew and understood about international students. If, if there was something you could sort of talk to the general population about this student population that you know so well, what would it be? One of the things that really surprised me, Brenna, was that my population is changed into even my expectations when I came into this role. I I really thought a lot of my students would be, you know, really in like the 20 to 24 age range. And, you know, younger have done like one degree in India or, you know, from which country they're from. Um, and are here to do a post or continue with their studies. But I'm actually really surprised at the number of students that are older, like that we're talking like in their late 30s, early 40s, coming with spouses, coming with children. I have this one couple, actually each semester I've met a family that I've just like for some reason have connected with. This My latest ones are from are from India and they have a little boy that uh, has come with them and he's going to school over at Beatty and mm-hmm. uh, the mom is looking, you know, she's looking to just, I guess she's just looking in community to kind of set some roots down and, and um, volunteer and maybe look for work. And so it's funny because I'm supporting them almost, I think, and maybe more than, than my student who, who is the dad and he's the student here. And so um, I think that when we think about the demographic of students, that is slowly changing, that um, lots of folks have are coming, having left really good jobs um, back home, um, have left spouses and children sometimes back home, and, and they are now applying for them to come over. So their focus is, is, is very different. So that was a really, a big eye-opener, I think, for me, in that the demographic has changed. And 
it's not just my studies and finding a job, but it's also, you know, being a dad to to my little boy who's going to school at the I think that's such critical pastoral care work that you're doing. And it's something that we probably need to be more cognizant of. I've never studied internationally, but when I went to grad school, I was in a really small town and I loved it. I adapted really quickly, but I remember a woman in my program who was like, you know, in her late twenties and she brought her husband with her and he was used to a big city and he felt a lot of culture shock being in a small place. And there were really no supports for them as a, as a couple, like as a family. And they, she dropped out of the program. Like he hated it and they went home and, you know, that's, I mean, obviously like a very different situation in a lot of ways, but it does to me speak to the need to see the whole student, not just their academic experience, but the other parts of their lives that are shaping and changing their focus and providing support and also barriers to their success, right? And being able to recognize that as a university community is, I think, about like that's true inclusivity. Mm-hmm. I think it's, you know, it can be challenging, right? They're leaving their home, they're leaving their support system, they're setting up a new, they're setting themselves up in a new community, now searching out that support system. And you know, we have amazing partners in community like Callous Immigrant Services who do amazing work. And, you know, some of our spouses have, folks have gone there and, and utilized those services and it's wonderful. And I think that it's just, you, you are providing support about TRU and, and their program, but you're also communicating, you know, things about Kamloops and, and our surrounding area. And, you know, make sure you check out Wildlife because I'm pretty sure your son would love that. You know, all these little things that, you know, you don't necessarily think about as like an international student advisor. I'm just talking about TRU and the experience, but I'm also an advocate um, and an ambassador for Kamloops and making sure that your experience for your whole family is, you know, is a positive one because tomorrow, the majority of my students, you know, they, they want to stay and they want to apply for a postgrad work permit. And I want you to enjoy being a permanent resident and maybe one day a Canadian, you know, so I hope that my interaction, whether it's for two years or for four years is a positive one. And, you know, maybe one day when you are in a different role and you are working, you can, you know, pass that, pay it forward to someone else, to a new immigrant like yourself. Oh, I really like that. That's a really nice way of thinking about it. And I think often we we see the international student or the structure of of international studies sort of operationally, and we don't, we don't actually think about like the individual families that the opportunity of international education represents, right? Like it's easy to just talk about it, uh, you know, when you're sitting in a strategic planning meeting or something as like from like a dollars and cents perspective, as opposed to from this human perspective that I think you're really elucidating here. It just hits you a little bit differently, you know, when you get to meet those students that are, you just know, right? You know, like all students are amazing. All students are special, but there are folks that come into your life that you're just like, wow, blinders are on for you. You are super focused. Like this is what you're going to do. And I'm super, I'm super stoked to be a part of this journey for you and anything that I can do, whether it's like connecting you in community or connecting you with folks on campus. I want to be a part of that because your success is my success. And, you know, I'm happy for you. Like I've had amazing people in my, I have amazing people in my life that have, you know, provided me with mentorship or, you know, opened a door or, or a window. And to be able to do that to to students that 
are coming for the first time, like it really makes me feel, it makes me feel proud and I'm so grateful to do it. And it reminds me of my, of my own family and my own struggles that, you know, my great grandfather immigrated in the 1920s to, to Canada from India. And, you know, maybe there were folks along his journey that helped him and I'm sure there were. And so this is my give back piece to be able to say that I'm, I'm doing it too. So I appreciate that opportunity to do it. I got to tell you, Stephanie, like talking to you is always just like a breath of fresh air. You know, um, we were doing a little bit of like uh, carping and harping before we started recording. But as soon as I hear you start to talk about your students and the people you serve, I just, I, I just, I remember why we do this. And so I'm always grateful to have the chance to talk to you because I don't know. I just think your perspective on our students and and what we offer them and what they offer us, it just, it always puts me back in a good place. So thank you. Thank you. I appreciate, I appreciate the opportunity. You know, I, I really am so grateful to be a part of really a part of a student's life from, you know, the beginning until they cross that stage of convocation, hopefully in person this year. And put that out in the universe. (laughs) Um, But I'm also so grateful to work with amazing folks across campus, you know, that that are also doing this work and that maybe don't always get, you know, recognized or, you know, given a kudos. But there are some really amazing uh, faculty and staff that really do go that extra mile. And and I'm so grateful to be a part of that team because really, at the end of the day, I'm here to serve students in in the best way that I can. And I feel so grateful to be supported by an amazing team, I guess. I guess that's what we are, right? We're a tier U team. Yeah, we are on the good days. <laughs> We're also a team on the bad days, but it's harder to remember sometimes. Yes. Thanks so much for your time today, Stephanie. I just always enjoy it when we chat. Thank you, Brenna. So that is it for season two, episode 17 of You Got This. As always, if you want to write to us, you can email me. I'm bgray at tru.ca. I'm also on Twitter at Brenna C. Gray. And in both cases, that's gray with an A. All of our show notes and transcripts are posted at yougotthis.truebox.ca. And of course, you can always comment on individual episodes there. I'm going to leave you today with a tiny teaching tip. And this week, The tiny teaching tip is to tell you to go to Course Hero and search for yourself if you haven't before. (laughs) Search your name and search the course codes that you teach. I don't want you to do that to police the work that's up there. Frankly, once it's up there, it's up a lot of places. And I suspect that going through the DCMA process with Course Hero might get your work taken off the Course Hero website publicly, but not protected in any meaningful way. But I want you to go and check it out because it's important to know what of your work is floating out there. It may help you rethink some of your assessment design. I know our friends in Kelt are always willing to have a conversation with you about making your assessments more robust, and we're certainly happy to have that conversation at LTNI too. But it starts with knowing what is out in the commons. So go check Course Hero, privatized commons though it perhaps is. And maybe think about whether your assessments need a refresh. And then book a chat, either with us or with Kelt, to make that happen. That's it for me this week. I'm tired. (laughs) But I'm always happy to chat with you, and I'll be looking forward to our conversation again next week. Bye for now. Bye.